developing a good understanding what actually happened in all these different market environments and linking it back to performance in that particular environment so that the manager can explain you why he actually make money in that particular environment, why he's expecting um, to make money in such an environment again. Spending time on that, it saves him from disappointment. It, it saves an investor in case it's not his own money, but he's working for a larger institution and investing money on behalf of the institution and makes life easier for everybody. And we have made the experience that the majority of investors just don't have the time or don't take the time to develop an understanding there. How do you know if your trading program is set up with the right models, systems or timeframes? How do you know if the risk parameters you chose are the best? How do you go from trading your own capital to suddenly managing external client assets? These are big questions that most if not all new managers have to consider and decide upon. And that's what we're talking about in today's episode of Top Traders Unplug. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Downside volatility um, in excess of 10% in a 1x version. Sure. And if, if there's something highly profitable combination, but it does not meet this risk criteria, it cannot be part of the portfolio. So the, the little guy can jump as high as he wants and says, pick me, pick me. If he, he might be highly profitable, but if he in combination with, with the others already being picked is causing uh, a risk incident, he will not be picked. It's really, it's really sad thing for him because he himself is really profitable. So he will probably not understand why not being picked. But um, um, the allocation process is framed by these risk criteria, and um, it cannot be guided by just profitability. Sure, sure. I'm glad it's all done sort of from an electronic point of view. Otherwise, there would be a lot of <laughs> disappointed fellows in your office every every month. That's um, correct. If they stand in line um, yes. uh, waiting to be picked, that would be um, a really sad picture because the majority of them are actually not picked. Yeah? Yeah. So um, they all have to go back home. Uh, one has to say they have a new chance next month. Sure. This goes for the strategy elements. And this also goes, I said earlier, it's a two-step process. In the first step, um, um, markets are selected. Um, I, I just, the other day, I explained it uh, to an investor how the market selection process is actually working. And I said, well, imagine all markets. We currently have 23 protections potentially tradable markets. And uh, maybe a short de detour here. No, um, go ahead. We always first test everything um, with our own assets. Yeah, so we put principal assets at risk before actually putting clients' assets at risk. So um, the 23 market, they are basically a result of us uh, from time to time adding an additional market, testing if the market is generally tradable um, in terms of is liquidity sufficient, um, how is the market pattern uh, are there market makers which are behaving in a certain way? Um, and so we, we can basically um, um, decide if a market is potentially tradable or not. And then it could theoretically be introduced to the, uh, put, um, to the process for the investors as well. And currently we are trading 23 and uh, you can look it up in our materials. They're only the big um, ones across all asset classes. So in the S&P 500, Euro stocks, the Bund, ETC, they're really highly liquid sure. markets. 
So um, when I explained the market selection process to the investor, I said, basically, think about all markets gathering at a bus stop. And um, the bus uh, they are all waiting for takes them to the portfolio selection process where the little fellows are basically selected. And you can sure. say every single market has a backpack with all his little strategy and fellows in there. And they're all, all quite excited that now they have waited for one month and maybe this time it's their chance to be picked. So um, the unfortunate thing for them, there are not enough seats on the bus for all these markets with all their backpacks and little fellows in there. And they basically have to compete for uh, a seat on the market, uh, a seat on the bus. Sure. And the number of um, seats is determined by the overall uh, market environment we are currently in and the um, um, characteristic of the individual markets in relation to each other. So um, unfortunate for the markets and the fellows even when you do, have done much better in terms of our criteria um, um, in comparison to the months before, it might be that it's just not enough because the others are probably also better than, and then you might not be picked again. So it's a, also, again, a really disappointing um, um, perspective from these markets. So the bus is coming, and the idea is to deselect highly loss-making markets. Um, I can um, go into that in a second. So probably sure. let's uh, finish the bus story probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the bus is slowly filled and um, some of them um, are still standing there and they, they get aware that this time it's not their time and they put all their hope on the next months and are uh, looking forward that the months will be really profitable and really interesting for them that their, that their characteristic are are improving in relation, particularly in relation to the other markets. And then the bus is leaving. And um, very often we get the question, well, does this process determine, for example, the waiting for the second process? And you can best explain by, if you're the first guy to enter the bus because um, you're just a hotshot and you can pick the seat you like most, for example, just behind the driver where you have the best view, um, it's I have to disappoint you as well, because this does not mean that you actually um, get the most strategies element selected in the second process. The bus only takes you to the process. It doesn't really matter if you were number one, number five, number 10. It does not really matter. All markets are equal in the same process because the strategy elements and variations are selected based on this risk criteria. So even when you're the hot shot in the first process, it doesn't help you in the second. You might end up um, being selected the, less, uh, the, the smallest number of strategy elements. Sure. <laughs> now, I have, I have a, a question to your bus story, and that is, when they're all lined up by the bus stop and you have to determine which ones to pick and allow on the bus, is that done pure? I mean, it has to be done some in some, some ways. And, and, and the only way I can think of is that you would have to look at all the possible strategy elements for each market and see what's the overall profitability. Uh, but it may not be done that, that way. But how do you determine which markets are, markets are the best or the most profitable? I mean, in broad speak, I'm, I'm not asking for any secret here. No, that's, that's, that's uh, you put it, you're actually really close. You're really okay. close. You pretty much described it how it actually is. Okay. The, the profitability of every single strategy man back in the backpack of this market waiting yeah. for the bus is actually one major um, characteristic uh, where um, this particular market has to be better in relation to the others. Right. But uh, as said earlier, in the um, strategy sele uh, element selection process, in the sure. second part, um, the risk criteria 
come into play sure. where a combination of strategies has to meet, um, for example, the downside volatility target and um, the profitability is not the determining factor. How do you determine how many seats are in the bus every month? That's based on, um, um, the, as said earlier, on different, different aspects. The overall Uh, market conditions in terms of um, volatility in these markets because generally speaking we like volatility but it's a dangerous statement <laughs> we can ex we can we can talk about that later because there are different kinds of volatility that's something we had to learn as well in the exchange with our investors where people say well that's volatility and we said yeah but not really direction volatility but let's go there later yeah. but uh, yeah volatility for example um, a profitability And um, assets under management is one in, in, in additional aspect. Um, generally, if you have more assets, uh, you have potentially also more seats. Yeah? Okay. But this is not the major driver. Okay. Um, I, want to, uh, I want to, unless there's more things you want to add about the actual trading program from an overall point of view, I want to uh, have just one question on the trade implementation. And then I want to move on to to something I think which again which is very important um, but just just on the on the on the uh, on the you know kind of probably more the selection process actually and that is mm -hmm. how long do these small fellows have to wait by the bus stop to for you to go through the whole process of selecting from this universe which is three-dimensional thousands of combinations how long does it actually take for you guys to to do that every single month <laughs> <laughs> um, very good question. Um, in the in the early days, so in 2010, the calculations in some cases took more than a week. Wow. So basically, which is really a critical um, pass because if for whatever reasons your computer stopped calculating, uh, because yeah. in th there we still had our own servers, hosted our own servers, um, you were you could end up in big trouble because uh, you just don't have enough time for the sure. allocation, so to say. But this was still our own money. We haven't had any sure. external assets. So the, f the next thing, once we started to accept external assets and actually were somehow um, limited to the monthly allocation because we had to be ready sure. once new assets are coming in because we had this fund. Yeah? In a managed account, you can probably tell an investor, um, let's not do the allocation um, um, on Monday. Um, um, we, we need two more days. Fortunately, it hasn't happened, but there you have more flexibility. But if you have a fund, you have to do the reallocation. Sure. So um, first thing we did, we took a lot of money and a lot of time and effort <laughs> and bought additional servers, more and more and more. And uh, this was first a good idea, but secondly, somebody has to take care of these servers. And uh, once you bought them, a couple of weeks later, you get more computing power, much cheaper already. So um, we somehow already knew, um, while the experience of actually doing that is quite interesting, uh, we have to go a different way. And so nowadays, we are basically using um, cloud computing. Um, we heavily rely on, on um, cloud computing of one of the largest service providers there. And uh, for the allocation process, for example, no, the allocation process is actually quite, um, quite fast now um, uh, already. But if we do um, long terms of calculations where we um, test all kinds of different angles, we build up the universe and do all kinds of testing in the different parts of the universe, uh, we sometimes have, um, I don't know, 
40, 40 servers. Uh, Daniel knows us much better with, I don't know, 50 cores or 60 cores. So sure. I, I'm not really a computer guy, but it sounds like a lot of computer, a okay. lot of cores, a lot of calculation. And um, it only takes a couple of um, hours um, um, nowadays. So, yeah. Um, and it's much cheaper as well. So that's, that's a big learning as well. Um, I referred to it earlier. Do not necessarily try to do everything in-house. If you're good in developing trading ideas and you need computers in order to verify what you're doing there and test everything from different angles, do not think that you have to have um, a server park as well <laughs> because this is just not your business. Your business is to develop these ideas and test them and um, let the server park um, um, take care, uh, be taken care of by people who actually know how to run servers. And um, this is what we do nowadays and it, it only takes a couple of hours to build up the portfolio. Is there a minimum number of markets that you have to have every month and a maximum number of markets that you have to have? Oh, okay. It's a, the, yeah. mi the minimum is six markets. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, there is theoretically is there is no maximum, but okay. we currently the trading universe has up to twenty three. Uh, you generally see um, um, six to twelve, six to fourteen markets. Um, um, because they have to compete based on these different criteria, and um, even when, let's say, all of them are profitable and all of them are really good, naturally um, the first um, ten. They are better than the other half. Yeah. Mm. And uh, you can, for diversification, um, in terms of cross-market diversification, you can add additional markets. But you always take away potential trading capacity on the other markets. Sure. Yeah, so it's a, it's a thin line in order not to curve it into um, a really small number of uh, trading opportunities and a small number of markets. But at the same time, why should you, why should you uh, go for uh, third best choice, fourth best choice, fifth best choice? Yeah? Sure. Um, that's, and that's something um, uh, which is driving the process there. So it's not like in football where there's only room for 11 players and you could have a, a, a few more if, if, if so. But let's... Um, Let's jump to something that I uh, think is really important and uh, I think is 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 great topic to talk about, and that's the risk management. And I think risk management, when it comes to a product like yours, uh, is probably even more fascinating uh, with everything that goes on inside. Um, first of all, I wanted to ask you how you view risk and what you mean by risk uh, when when you talk about it. Um, but I also, so I don't forget. Also wanted to ask you um, that I uh, uh, let me put it this way. I assume that each market that does get a selection um, obviously doesn't have the same uh, risk exposure because the risk exposure comes from the number of strategy elements or the number of fellows that are is allowed to play for the month uh, within that market. Is that correctly understood? Yeah, that's correct. There, there are two drivers. It's um the number of strategy elements, but there's actually one before that as well. If you take a strategy element in silver, for example, and exactly the same strategy element in Eurostocks in terms of what kind of trend following strategy am I using, what kind of trading parameters am I using, second level and third level, what kind of risk parameters, same strategy elements from two different markets, the silver strategy element naturally has um, higher risk because the con one silver contract um, has a larger nominal um, value in comparison to the euro stocks, mm -hmm. and um, silver is more volatile as well. So if if you if you would uh, let if you take these two guys and they compete against each other, actually silver has more risk right from the beginning. So if you build up your portfolio, you, you cannot just say let's take one silver, one euro stocks, sure. and we are all even and equal. It has these 
aspect has to be uh, incorporated in your um, um, portfolio allocation process. Mm, absolutely. Anyway, back to my first question. How, what is risk to you? How do you view risk uh, in, 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 in your program? It has, I already hinted uh, at it when talking about the allocation process that one dominant risk framework or part of the risk framework is downside volatility. So the uh, allocation process is, um, so to say, a Sotino optimization, one could argue, uh, because of course we would not select a portfolio and trade a portfolio which is just not making any money at all. So the profitability is certainly part of it, but it's dominated by the risk aspect. And here in that particular case, it's not just volatility, um, but it's downside volatility because the way singularity works and actually a lot of um, managed futures um, work in terms of um, risk uh, return profile, um, you, you, you have a larger number of um, small losses throughout um, a trading months and you have um, a smaller but more attractive um, 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 number of days where you have high 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 profits so if you if you actually just go down the volatility um, kind of risk perspective that actually means um, you punish yourself for the upside risk because it somehow influences the allocation process and the way you perceive risk. But we're actually focusing on the downside volatility because we we love to see the upside um, volatility. That's perfectly fine. But we, we focus all our efforts on the downside volatility in order to, to limit drawdowns. And this is probably the, the major, major um, aspect, how we look at risk. And it also, um, it's also reflected in our um, um, marketing material or fact sheets or presentation. Um, you generally um, always have the question, um, what is your sector allocation? Yeah? Um, how, how, how many percentage um, do you invest in, in, in fixed income or in equity, ETC? And we approached it from, from the perspective, we say, well, um, it does not make sense to um, add up all the nominal values of our strategies in a particular market and say, if you add this up um, and we divide it by the total, um, let's say fixed income currently has uh, 24% or something like that. Yeah, that's uh, uh, Equity currently has 24%. That's not how it works. Um, we look at it as risk contribution. So um, going back to the allocation process, when you take one strategy demand and you take an additional strategy demand, you test if there has been a risk incident and if they're profitable. And when they're confirmed, you take the next one. Um, you always you always look at it. How much do these two guys, three guys, four little fellows, five little fellows actually contribute to your overall risk budget? Because um, every single um, um, assets in a portfolio have a certain risk budget when you look from the um, risk perspective. And when all the risk budget um, 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 is basically um, um, used by the allocation process, then it stops and the allocation is ready and you have these 1,500 or whatever selected strategy elements. And... Um, that actually means every single strategy man has a contribution towards your downside volatility budget, so to say. And our pie charts, where we say that we currently have 24% in equity and 28% uh, fixed income and so on, um, this actually um, refers to the risk contribution of all these strategy elements which are fixed income strategy elements, which are equity elements to the risk objective of downside volatility, 10% slash risk budget available. Quick question for you here, Bastian. Um, 
and 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 uh, maybe this is a sort of a, a very naive question but if there is just to say 10 markets 150 uh, fellows in each market uh, trading for the month of november could they all go long in their respective market or is there some kind of limit where and that's how, and, and we all have a very sleepless night um, <laughs> <laughs> or a very um, good night you know <laughs> yeah yeah a very good night um it's um it's a very theoretical question okay theoretically um um you could have such a situation that would be your absolutely worst 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 case um in terms of if all these positions are actually wrong in terms of what is actually happening on the next day in terms of overnight gap and something like that. Or, or, or actually what I was getting at here. Yeah, mm -hmm. but, but what I was getting at here was more to understand whether if your system sees that all 1,500 guys goes long, that you have some other mechanism that comes in and saying, well, actually, you know, once the first 750 has gone long, you have a cap saying, well, then we have to wait for some of them to, to get out again before we allow a new one in. Because, but I did understand it as them operating independently. So, And I guess your answer is theoretically they could all go long, but it, it doesn't happen. Yeah, it, 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 um, based on the strategy element, it, it, there's no um, 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 panic button, right. where, <laughs> basically where it, it's put in sleep mode. And this sure. little guy um, um, yeah, gets seduced and uh, doesn't know what's happening, wakes up with a headache and uh, just missed his trading opportunity. No, but it's basically uh, what you're referring to is taking place on, on uh, during the allocation process. Because uh, if, if, there's, if there are developments in the market environment across all these, um, let's say, 10 markets currently allocated, which actually would force the currently selected strategies to all go along. Um, generally, there should have been something like that in the past. Mm. Of course, the future is always slightly different to what's actually happened in the past, but there, there are connections. That's, let's, let's say in, in your case now, it's actually all go along, but then we probably should have seen something like 90% or 80% all go along in the past. Yeah? Mm. Maybe not as extreme as now, but some kind of indication. And the allocation process would have picked that up and actually um, 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 defined that as something probably quite risky, particularly if you have um, movements on the next day which are not beneficial for larger parts of your positions. And that would have caused a risk incident. So it's, it is unlikely, if not to say impossible, that you actually have selected all these strategy elements which actually would result in an allocation that all of these are long. Yeah? Actually, what you generally see, um, um, you see... Probably there's one characteristic of a strategy. And um, if you go back, level number two is um, time frames, for example, yeah. trading parameters. That actually means you have strategy elements which are highly reactive on mm. the short term side. Sure. And you have um, um, some which are really slowly reacting to new market environments. To give, uh, add some numbers here, highly reactive uh, means um, just holding a position for an hour in our case. Sure. And really slow means up to, uh, currently we have two and a half years. We have some strategy elements in the S&P which, which have this two and a half year horizon. And, and uh, this actually means um, there's um, a diversification in terms of reactivity as well. Sure. And uh, uh, naturally, of course, when you have, let's say, 100, 150 strategy elements in the Euro stocks, um, you will see some of some of them being long the entire time. If you take October, for example, October has been a really good month for us. Perfect 
the perfect market scenario. I think one of the um, other managers um, wrote in their newsletter, it was a perfect storm. And in their case, it was um, <laughs> leading to a really high drawdown. And I said, yeah, it was a perfect storm. And we had a sailboat and we were, were faster than ever. Yeah. Well, was actually the, the, the best months in the history of the fund, not in the history of the program, but we were up um, 7.5% or 7.75% 7, 7 or something like that. And how did that happen? If you look at the um, equity strategy amounts, for example, in the S&P 500, um, there's a larger portion of them being in the long-term space, so to say, and they were long the entire months. That actually meant when the equity markets dived, um, um, I think it was October 15th where so, they had uh, the deepest point. They lost pretty much 10% from mid-September to mid-October. Mm -hmm. These little fellows were quite sad because they had actually a loss. Um, sure. And they they could not do anything about it because um, nothing was triggered because they're so slow and so long-term. Um, while this was actually a substantial loss for people looking at the chart when following the S&P, for them it was a loss. They could not do anything about it because no... Um, counter signal was triggered based on their setting. Sure. But if you look at the midterm and short-term strategy, they were actually quite active at that time. The short-terms actually were able to make money in the downwards movement and in the upwards movement. And the same goes for parts of the midterm strategy elements as well. So and if you look at the positioning, um, that can be quite, quite interesting because uh, you have some elements actually going short and some of them also taking profit, for example. So if you look at the end of the day, say, well, we just the S&P just dived um, X amount of um, percentage. Why do we still have um, an overall long position? Yeah. Yeah. Because um, the long-term strategies are still long position and the mid-term strategy elements are still long positions, maybe slightly reduced. And the counterbalancing short-term ones, which might have um, reduced the overall net position um, a couple of days earlier when you looked at the overnight positions, um, um, some of them have taken profit or something like that, or um, 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 they, they are already, uh, yeah, they, they are not p part of the overnight allocation. Sure. And um, so the resulting net position um, might be reduced, but still be long despite um, the equity market um, diving. And uh, that's, that's a really important aspect that basically the net position in every single market, of course, is the net position of these individual behavior of these little fellows. Okay. And um, your question is in, consequently highly theoretical. Sure. No, absolutely. And I mean, just out of curiosity, are there any of these markets in your portfolio? And I'm sure there is, but uh, I mean, are there any of these markets the fellows prefer to play in and uh, actually do better in over, over time? Um, you mean in terms of these? Uh, these are the top markets. Or I mean, in terms well, of. Well, I mean, I mean that that that's, that that trend follows in general. We know that, for example, interest rates have been a particular good uh, market sector for uh, for these kind of strategies over time. But since you're putting a new team out every month, I was just wondering whether you found that there are certain markets that are more consistent and better performing in general um, in in the long run. Mm -hmm. um, interest rates are certainly um, an interesting market spectrum, and they they are um, among the top top performers throughout the entire time. Um, precious precious metals are quite interesting uh, as well. Um, in naturally, in in the last um, 18, 18 months, equities have become more interesting. Um, but lost parts of it. Um, if you, for example, go uh, look at the the Nasdaq, for example, or the Russell. Um, it, 
this has lost um, attractiveness, certainly. But um, the S&P still, still has um, a valid position there. Um, but this is a very uh, dangerous pass when describing singularity because I, very often in the early days when, when an investor said, well, do you, where do you make market? You probably make market in fixed income, right? And we said, yeah, um, the Bund is a very profitable market for us. Said, well, I don't need something like that. I already sure. have it in the portfolio because all the trend followers make money there. And then I said, well, um, but let's look at May 2013. He said, yeah, that was a devastating month. Uh, uh, it was actually the worst month in terms of fixed income. All my trend followers in my portfolio um, lost heavily on the fixed income side and, uh, and, and uh, dominated the entire P&L for the entire year. And then I could say, yeah, and we actually made um, um, unbelievable amounts of money in, 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 in fixed income in yeah, May. Exactly. And it actually made, made uh, fixed income the most profitable sector for that particular year. Um, um, mostly driven by uh, May, and so it. It while I'm I'm referring to as fixed income being a very attractive market, one probably has to be very careful why this is uh, attractive market. Of and course. generally, you would most likely see that um, um, singularity makes his uh, uh, profits and his losses at different times compared to the classical trend followers. Let's jump to something which is related to risk management, which is drawdowns. And I wanted to ask you, given all these computations you do, given all your research, what kind of drawdowns do you in your own mind expect a strategy like yourself uh, to uh, exhibit from time to time? Mm-hmm. And I know that, I mean, I know whatever number you say now or range, uh, obviously it may be completely different uh, if we come back and talk about this 10 years from now. But I'm just trying to get a feel for, um, you know, how this works and, and, and how maybe your drawdown slash risk profile might look different to a more classical uh, product where you don't see this uh, boss coming by every month to pick up uh, markets and, <laughs> and, and fellows. Yeah, drawdown, very good thing. Yeah, um, of course we had our largest drawdown already. No, of sure. course not. Biggest drawdown always ahead of you. Um, rule number one for sure. Um, the fortunate thing about the um, risk return profile of singularity, but also a painful aspect of it, that um, we see that our drawdowns build up over time. Uh, we learned from um, some U.S. investors, actually, um, they refer to it as you bleed out. So you bleed out over time. Um, if you look at the drawdown, for example, of autumn last year um, until until recently, we're currently in the recovery there. Uh, what were the driving factors for that particular drawdown? Um, we were quite um, lucky that we um, could communicate quite straightforward already in autumn what was actually happening and that the driving um, factors for this drawdown actually remains the same throughout the entire period. And this is, uh, if you think about the highly reactive profile of the program, that actually natural means that uh, singularity doesn't like um, um, choppiness, uh, that um, sideways moving markets are a difficult environment. But sideways moving does not necessarily mean sideways moving. So if you if you have um, 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 larger swings, even aside with moving markets, um, a larger part of the strategy elements can still make profit there. It becomes really tricky 
uh, when the um, narrow ranges get narrower and narrower, if you, for example, take Let's take oil. Yeah, I think oil uh, has been trading in, in a sideways movement since um, 2011, more or less. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, you still had big swings in 2011, particularly 2012. Um, um, you, had, you had a big a downside movement to the mid of 2012 and then a big upward movement as well. There, your longer midterms can still make some money. But if you look at the more recent past, um, since mid-2013 um, until more recently mid-2014, the movements became smaller and smaller and uh, the the narrow, so to say, and this narrow range is really difficult for singularity because it starts uh, make more and more losses, and we refer to that as um, there are a lot of fake outs where the system and these little fellows believe something is happening, and there's a directionality they can actually take advantage of. They jump on that directionality, and then they just realize, oh no, it's changing direction, and then they they get off this directionality, and maybe it's coming back again, particularly when you look on it on an intraday basis. Yeah. Sure. So um, this choppiness, um, and on top of it, the interventional interventional um, um, aspect where we where we saw um, a lot of uncertainty around the government shutdown in autumn last year in the uh, in the U.S. and uh, comments from Draghi, which shortly pushed some movement into the market, but which turned out to disappear um, quite fast again. Um, this is a really difficult environment, and that's where we start to build up a drawdown over time. You have um, 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 a high number, uh, increasing number of um, losses, which build up the drawdown, so you bleed out over time. Yeah. And this can be a really difficult period. Historically, we know that something like that ends at a certain point. Why um, it has been quite difficult for us um, in that particular drawdown, because it was quite long in, t in his historic terms. Um, in our live trading, as well as in our data, we, we haven't seen something like that in terms of lengths mm -hmm. and particularly uh, markets involved because you saw more and more markets actually falling into the sideband pattern with the exception of the ever-rising equity markets. Sure. But you cannot just trade equities. Yeah? <laughs> and You could, but that's not how we do it. And um, 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 it got narrower and narrower. And this hasn't been... Um, has never been the case um, for our way of trading in our set of data as well. I, I said earlier that we um, are looking at um, a certain li minimum liquidity in markets, so we go back to the early 2000s, but um, something like that hasn't happened before. Deep, deep in our understanding how the program works and when actually testing during the drawdown, is the program doing what's supposed to do or is the drawdown coming from somewhere else, um, we could always confirm it's actually doing what it's supposed to do and it's losing money in environment, which is not good for it. But at the same time, we did not know how much longer this will actually last. Mm. And uh, that's a question we could not um, um, answer as well when investors said, well, how, how much longer this will take? And we say, we don't know the future, guys. Um, sure. We can tell you if this continues, we are not a good place to be. Um, if, you, if you have um, a certain understanding about market timing and you think that that will continue for a certain period of time, we would recommend not to be invested with us for a certain period of time. And that's where I can refer back to what we discussed earlier about different types of investors. Um, uh, investor number one, um, chasing performance, these investors, they will come to a, a, a point where they actually redeem 
doing that drawdown because you do not the the, the driver for them to invest was performance. You're not performing anymore. They're scared uh, that this will continue, so they basically leave. Then you have um, um, a second type of investor. Um, we here in, internally we refer to them as silverback, like the the gorillas. Sure. Say sure. the silverbacks they have seen so much. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, um, they have developed an understanding how the program works, and we actually had we had one of these silverbacks as a, as a very interesting investor. It's a family office, and um, he actually invested in autumn, already um, during a, a period where it became more difficult, and um, he exited in January, which was first disappointing um, um, for us because we said, "Ah, oh, why doesn't he stay long with us?" But he he actually said straightforward. I like you guys, and it's really interesting what you're doing, but I strongly believe it's not your time. You are currently in, 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 a, in a certain um, uh, um, part of the business cycle, of your business cycle in terms of how looking at markets and what markets have to offer you, where I, I believe, based on my experience, that's where the silverback aspect comes into play, that this will continue um, um, for um, additional X amount of months. And um, I most likely will come back if this changes, because... Um, I still, I still like what you're doing, and um, you can play an interesting part in my portfolio. But I, I, I don't have to go down in this drawdown if I um, um, have my own experience and be, um, believe um, how the markets most likely will turn out over the next couple of months. And if I'm wrong at this point, it doesn't really, it, it, it's not so bad. I will miss part of your, of, of your uh, first development, but I strongly believe in you guys in the long term. So don't worry about that. And this was really helpful to understand. Um, that certain investors try to time you, and if they have this skill set um, and um, have done well over all these years, that's why they are silverbacks. Um, it is a per perfectly fair point to make. And um, the third type of investor, um, which we love probably most, <laughs> is these are the guys um, who take the time to really understand what you're doing. Um, they incorporate um, um, an understanding. Um, how your drawdowns look like, bleeding out over time. They um, they make assumptions how long these periods could be. They add an additional margin of safety and say, well, that's how you do. But uh, don't, um, don't worry, you have a certain risk-return profile and you are um, a building block in our portfolio. We want you to act exactly in that way. Even when you're a drawdown, we have different managers who will actually perform in such an environment. So um, that's why you have to live through that particular drawdown. And this this um, uh, is a very interesting um, type of investor because it, it will generally stick with you also in a drawdown. And um, um, you learn a lot. Um, you particularly get a lot of support um, dealing with a drawdown and the emotional aspects when investors are disappointed that you're currently not performing. I mean, it's interesting, and I, I appreciate the way you describe these kind of investors, and I think you you got some 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 great points about it. But you know, to me at least, you know, investor number two who knows that you're picking fifteen hundred different market model combinations on a monthly basis uh, across twenty three different markets. I have to wonder how they know exactly that you're going to go through a good time or a bad time. It doesn't really matter whether they're right or wrong, but the fact mm. that someone actually believes that they can foresee what's going to happen in a, in a, in a, in a strategy like that, um, to me, it's a little bit uh, incredible that they would go with that kind of uh, notion. <laughs> but anyways, that's a, that's a different discussion. Mm. Um, anyways, uh, we all have drawdowns. We know that. Um, 
Is there anything that you've learned from the drawdown you went through? Is there anything you've said, yeah, you know, that's uh, something we need to um, take into account um, because we, it's going to happen again and we want to be, you know, approaching it differently? Is there anything? Yeah, certainly. There's, uh, there's a really important aspect, which is probably quite interesting for um, other younger managers as well, sure. or people who actually think about setting up um, their own um, um, asset management business. Sure. Um, in uh, looking at our development, basically being being traders ourselves and actually trading the singularity program in the first starting point was trading it for ourselves and uh, enabling investors based on institutional setup um, to trade alongside us. Um, there's one, it's probably fair to say there's a um, business side of things. These these are basically the uh, investors in dealing with them in good times as in bad times and actually um, building up a sustainable business as well. If you do something like that, you want to have um, you want to have um, um, a positive development there as well, more assets, stable investor base and stuff like that and make some money as well. Otherwise, you would not just do it for the fun of it. And and there is a trading side of things. And where whereas we... Um, feel very comfortable with the trading side of things, how Singularity is developing throughout different market environments, even a drawdown. Um, you can you can tell uh, uh, this basically when looking at our leverage. We are trading Singularity on a leverage basis um, um, throughout most of the um, time since being live. We trade a Forex um, program um, when we run into deeper drawdowns. In particular, as we, the lowest part we have been trading was 2.5x, but you can tell that there's quite some conviction. And so you mean the, really part, the partners? So, so what you partners say, we trade the exactly. partners, the partners Yeah, trade. the partners, okay. the partners, the partners um, um, capital, basically. Sure. So we put our own money at risk in a, um, between 2.5x and 4x. Sure. And um, um, investors' capital generally um, um, has, a, has a 1x. Uh, yeah. Not generally, it actually has a 1x um, in comparison to principal assets. Sure. But we just recently introduced a 2x in the... Um, in the fund, but sure. I can can talk about that later. So basically, um, the trading side of things have been quite straightforward. Uh, we were we were um, um, also surprised, let's say, about the length and the magnitude in terms of how many markets are actually in exactly the same sideways pattern. But we were also convinced that this will not last forever. And you could also talk to investors. There's hardly anybody out there who says, well, the way it's currently it is, it will stay forever. Yeah. So, um, so it's, it's more a question about um, how much longer this will last. And do us actually still have money left in the end? Um, um, you can refer to sure. um, a roulette table <laughs> um, or a gaming. Um, you need a chip. Yeah, if you don't have any chip, you can put on whatever color or number um, you're out of the game. So even in trading, you, if you think about chips or money, you, you need some chips left on the table in order to to um, um, grow your business again. Sure, sure. But um, as you can tell, um, continuing to even in the hard, in deepest drawdown with a 2.5x, uh, uh, we were very convinced that this will not last forever. And we were ready um, to sit that through and not touch the program and change anything, but actually let it trade the way it is. Um, but this does not really um, um, work uh, on the same emotional level when actually looking at the business side of things. Because when you're dealing with investors, particularly with these different type of investors we were talking about earlier, 
uh, there is a lot of pressure basically from investors, actively from investors, but also perceived by, by an asset manager that you feel under pressure, but probably nobody has said something or, or they just commented in a certain way. Yeah? And uh, uh, it adds additional aspects when people um, invested in you because they like you and they don't even know how the program works because they were not interested or um, 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 all kinds of different aspects, family, sure. money, stuff like that. So um, if you go through a drawdown, uh, you have to prepare, actually before, if when, once you start trading external assets, you have to prepare yourself that um, there will be a point in time where you go through a drawdown and where you have um, to manage these um, emotional aspects as well. And uh, uh, if you look at our development in, in, in early um, 2014, uh, March was um, a difficult month and April was a difficult month. So we were in a drawdown where we had a lot of um, 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 choppiness in the markets. Uh, we could always explain what was happening. So we were quite consistent in the narrative and a lot of our investors understood what was happening, but you still feel pressured somehow. Of and when we when we reached uh, early May, uh, I think it was the 2nd of May, a Friday, non-farming employment data. Um, this was uh, a day with high, interval, uh, high um, um, intraday volatility. We got chopped out again, particularly on, on the midterm strategy elements. And this added additional weight on, on the already uh, accumulated drawdown. So um, if you look at the performance of the program, the program performed 3% in May. Why? Because May was actually the beginning of the recovery. Right. Yeah. So if you look at the fund, uh, at, the, at the beginning of the recovery, which continued in, in August this year and now in October, as I said sure. earlier. And uh, in the fund, the fund is actually down 2.6%. So how could that happen? We actually, in communication with investors in the fund and all the pressure we felt on the business part of things, right. business side of things, not on the trading side, sure. um, we reduced the trading level to 20% in the fund. Right. And it was our own, it's our own decision. We are the sure. asset manager, so we are responsible for it, of course. But in the end, it was an, it's more an interactive part between the communication between investors and, and what we felt um, to do or f felt pressured to sure. do in the particular circumstances. And at the same time, if you look at um, principal assets and we communicated it as well to investors, uh, we continued to trade these assets at a 0.5x at that particular time. So um, we, the reduction took place on May 5th, and on Tuesday, the recovery started. It was a beautiful recovery, and uh, for, uh, that's basically why it was it's really good sure. in terms of the development of the program, uh, but it was really unfortunate in terms of timing um, uh, for fund investors. Sure. And of course, uh, uh, we sat down afterwards and discussed it heavily. And if you trade a fund, you're not as flexible um, um, uh, because you have all kinds of different investors and you can um, you can actually put certain investors at disadvantage if you sure. do things like sure. that. You have sure. to stick through whatever you think is the right thing to do. Yeah. And uh, if you have a managed account with investors, that's perfectly fine. They can decide every single day what they want to do. That's all good. So we decided that this has been a very important learning and lessons for us, how to deal with pressure on the business side of things and that we will not touch uh, the program again in 
in circumstances like that, yeah. particularly not if we ourselves are convinced that uh, you can write this um, um, situation through. Sure. We did not know how much long it will take, but we knew historically that our recoveries are high. Um, um, all of us were disappointed about the length of um, um, the sidewards markets, but it naturally makes sense um, when you look at the overall macroeconomic environment. And we all somehow knew as well that this will end at a certain point of time. And every single day you stick in there longer is one day closer to the a potential day where things are changing. And okay. in terms of wrong timing, this has been the worst wrong timing ever. But I think I can remember one of your earlier guests um, um, uh, also talked about drawdowns and I, I had to smile here and there because um, a, a lot of managers have made exactly the same experience and uh, and it made them much stronger because they have made this experience and uh, they have certainly a different skill set now how to deal with drawdowns when dealing with investors. I mean this is the natural uh, evolution of building a business you know it's 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 you know every day is a learning process and I think it's uh, you know, I appreciate the uh, the openness and 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 the honesty about uh, an experience like that, but this is something that we can all learn from. And I, I completely agree that probably most of the billion dollar managers that we see today, they have of course been in a similar situation in their early part of the career, and you learn from it. And and that's and this is what it's all about. Uh, you know, our conversation today is about sharing both the ups and the downs because we want to pass on these experiences uh, to people. So uh, so so I appreciate that. I want to jump because we've already spoken for more than two hours. So I want to make sure I cover the last couple of sections. Um, and so um, in terms of research, it's not that I have many questions. Um, but I have one question at least, and that is, when I look at your strategy, I see, you know, masses of amount of different market model combinations being deployed, uh, you know, every single month, um, some live and some needs to wait until uh, the next month begin. So in one sense, I would say it's hard to imagine you coming up with a lot of new trend following strategies that could be deployed and therefore I'm thinking well maybe the future development is in terms of research is more related to are there any more markets we can trade but I may not be right on this how do you what what's what's the research discussion inside uh, your business right now when you sit and talk about where to look next what, what are you looking at all kinds of different things on our research list for quite some time. I said earlier, you you can always explore into different um, 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 markets and and check whether additional markets might be beneficial for the way we are trading. But this is more um, um, a regular regular thing we do. It's not as exciting. If 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 you think about the allocation process, um, the adaptive allocation process, what is this actually doing? It's actually trying to build the optimum portfolio. Um, based on the information available for the next months. The next month it's doing that again and again and again. And of course, the um, allocation process learns uh, about things which went right and uh, went wrong. So uh, it adapts itself to changing market environments and learns as well um, about its own experience of allocating in particular situations. And currently, as we said earlier, um, singularity um, only trades trend-following signals. So it, uh, it basically takes trend-following signals in these um, um, variations with sure. these little fellows. Um, but you can think about um, the, the perfect system 
theoretically would not just only take trend following signals, but all kinds of different strategies available and try to build to build up the portfolio basically based on the different um, um, types of strategies as well. And we uh, we actually have explored into that direction as well with our principal assets and uh, are currently trading um, on separate accounts, different kinds of strategies um, as well, uh, mean reverting strategies and things like that. And potentially in the future, you could actually um, create a system which goes beyond this uh, more uh, trend-following focused approach, but actually uh, incorporates all kinds of different trading, um, a type of trading strategies and builds up a portfolio on a more regular basis, trying to react to changes in market environment by allocating um, capital uh, towards uh, um, uh, these different strategies. But this is probably something we would do in, in a, sep a separate product in order to keep um, singularity as it is. But it's uh, certainly something we do on the research side, uh, and we are quite excited to, to, to explore opportunities on that side. Mm. Absolutely, that that does sound exciting. Another dimension to the uh, to the program. Um, I want to jump to the next section, which is just a little bit about sort of the the uh, I call it the business side, but it doesn't necessarily uh, um, is a right description. But when you look at your business right now, what do you see as the what's the biggest challenge today? Do you think? We discuss parts of it in terms of regulatory aspects. Sure. So you have to you have to um, keep you have to keep updated in terms of the regulatory aspects of the business, and um, uh, I would say that's that's probably one of the major drivers. And sure. then then how investors react to it as well. Uh, um, and we cannot fully escape the overall situation, the space, um, when I refer to space, I mean the managed future space or CTA space um, is currently in. So uh, while it was it was quite fortunate for us to actually navigate um, the last couple of years in a different fashion towards sure. the classical programs and um, we haven't had had any negative year so far and uh, currently uh, we are quite close maybe to even be successful in not being negative this year um, let's keep fingers crossed but this shows that we were somehow able to navigate these waters differently but at the same time we cannot escape um, the suffering of the space so to say if if the space is not hip and in it's certainly much more difficult even for um, a successful manager in terms of what they're delivering in an environment to attract additional capital because the decision makers on the investor side, they, they might not um, be aware of what you're doing. In our case, we're quite lucky. Um, um, we have um, a lot of investors actually following us quite closely because we we quite regularly go to uh, these larger conferences where you have one-on-one -on -one meetings with uh, investors. And uh, this is a very um, perfect, it's a basically the perfect um, um, setting for us to, to get to know new people and to stay in touch and on top of it, yeah, uh, to exchange yourself with the industry. And we are basically going twice a year on, on, on one of these larger conferences. Um, but at the same, but it's still, um, they might be aware of you, but uh, politically, internally, they might not be able to invest. And we actually have seen um, uh, in our case, as well as with other managers um, here in 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 the in Switzerland, other managed future managers who are actually quite successful as well, uh, even being larger than us, um, something like trading 500 million or something like that, uh, or even more, they um, 
saw redemptions because their investors had to redeem because um, investors of the, their investors, if they are fund of fund or something like that, um, saw outflows. So um, you cannot escape the overall condition, the space uh, you are living and working in um, um, is developing. You can try to stick out, you can try to stay away from the major troubles, uh, but it, it, it's still, uh, you have to somehow keep fingers crossed that the space itself is doing better and, um, and uh, gets more attractive for investors again. And if you think about when CTAs actually performed best, uh, and why they actually got all these assets in the post-2008-2009 uh, uh, post environment. I, I don't want to be here and, and, and use my glass bowl in order to tell you how, manage, how the markets will look like in the future, but one could probably argue that we are closer to um, an environment where you can see larger swings and moves and more volatility than um, two years ago. And uh, that might be uh, the rebirth of the space, so to say. And uh, we would definitely also benefit from that, despite um, having a different um, um, profile. Of course, of course. I had one question uh, just before we, we, we finish off uh, this, uh, but then I thought of another one. I just want to uh, jump in here and, and, um, and ask you, and that is, when you talk to investors, potential investors, I should say here, what do you feel or what do they tell you as the main reason they can't invest? If they to, if they have to give you a reason why at the moment, because, you know, if I look at your returns, that's not a reason for not investing because your returns are, uh, you know, have been very attractive. So what what is the reason they would typically give for not investing? In the beginning, it was size. Right. But um, then, then we um, got more and more assets then the size part actually disappeared in terms of an argument. And um, timing is, is also something which you probably hear very often when you're a young manager that um, you need a minimum um, number of years of track record. But um, um, in our case, now we have um, four plus years, so that's not a reason as well. Uh, it's actually something I just said um, a couple of minutes ago that um, they not necessarily have um, – um, capital at right. the moment. They are already invested with um, uh, managers, definitely different in, in comparison to our profile. In many cases, uh, they are still in drawdowns with these investors and they fear um, to actually um, pull money from them and actually invest in us uh, and uh, uh, actually lock in these losses. Sure. So what we actually experienced that in some cases when um, investors who were actually interested in what we are doing um, um, saw a recovery of their already existing bonds, um, they actually pulled the money and we got an allocation. Mm. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately for them, this was uh, this actually happened in autumn last year and, right. and, and early this year. So what happened in their particular case, which re-emphasized what you said earlier about um, the uh, skill set of timing managers, sure. um, they actually locked in the, lo uh, the losses of the classical trend-following programs they had in their portfolio, and now they're actually in a drawdown uh, with us. Fortunately yeah. for them, they're now back in a recovery. Of course, um, um, classical trend following programs have done relatively well this year. So sure. um, um, uh, they would have been a much be better position when they actually would consider redeem now from them, maybe. I don't know. But in, in invest in us. I always prefer if invest people invest in us, of 
course. But in that particular case, I was actually quite sad for the decision making and timing because locked in a loss um, uh, or a drawdown and um, and joined us in a drawdown. I'm I'm quite happy that we are currently um, seeing light at the end of the tunnel and have quite a good development at the moment. The market environment is moving towards um, a direction which is uh, offering us much more opportunities um, over the last couple of months, um, not only just in one part of the um, um, universe, but actually across all markets. October has been a perfect sample case for that, where um, all asset classes were basically um, um, positive contributors and um, the majority of markets were actually all positive as well. So um, we already discussed um, equities in the beginning. If you think about precious metals, they left their ranges as well um, at the end of the month. So it was the perfect storm in terms of um, uh, a beautiful market environment uh, where Singularity can capture a lot of opportunities. And it seems to be that... um, um, an environment like that um, uh, is more likely to reoccur, and uh, the overall market isn't developing in that direction uh, than um, when we actually thought about that a year um, ago. Sure. Um, last question in this topic before we go to the final section, uh, Bastian, and that is, um, I mean, clearly growing growing your business, it means you uh, meet with lots of potential investors and you have answered, I'm sure, many different due diligence questionnaires along the way and so on and so forth. What I'm interested in finding out from you is what is the question that investors really should be asking you, but which they're not, uh, that you don't see in their uh, due diligence questionnaires or in the meetings you participate in? I would probably think about it less about a particular question, but more about emphasis um, sure. on what they could should spend time on. And it's... Um, links to the aspect of uh, your question about a track record. So really, um, to really sit down and not just being interested in performance, but actually developing a good understanding um, what actually happened in all these different market environments and linking it back to performance in that particular environment so that the manager can explain you why you actually make money in that particular environment, why he's expecting um, to make money in such an environment again, and why um, a drawdown um, 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 will most likely be um, a drawdown again in a similar environment. So um, spending time on that helps an investor much better to define the role um, a manager or singularity um, can take in his portfolio. It saves him from disappointment. It it saves an investor in case it's not his own money, but he's working for a larger institution and investing money on behalf of the institution. He has much more information available to um, defend his position in decision making and makes life easier for everybody. And uh, we have made the experience that the majority of investors just don't have the time or don't take the time to develop an understanding there. A lot of due diligence um, takes place on the operational side. And this was um, um, very important, is a very important thing. Um, and we ex- was good for us as well because it helped us to further improve our operational side and um, reach a really high level uh, on that aspect. But um, uh, we see less, we see less um, interest and less time spent on understanding um, uh, what are good times and what are bad times mm-hmm. uh, f- uh, in, in case of a program, 
which uh, would certainly uh, be more beneficial for everybody. Um, I, the investor type number three, <laughs> they know you best. Yeah. Uh, and they, they do that. Um, not necessarily right at the beginning. Um, they, they might start with a smaller allocation and increase the allocation over time, but they are interested in, in, a, in a continuous dialogue. They want to hear from you what's going on. They're asking you what's going on. And this is really beneficial for all sides because you as a manager learn a lot as well. Um, but uh, investor type number one is not interested in that at all. And he might actually benefit from that as well. Um, and uh, yeah, the silverback we already discussed as well. So. <laughs> The last section, Bastian, um, you probably know already that I try to finish off with some sort of general and, and, and a bit of fun questions just to uh, to shake things up a little bit and get and, and for people to get to know you maybe even uh, a bit more. Is there any book, for example, that you would recommend people to, um, to, to read? A book that, I mean, it could be a book that just... Uh, has had a big impact on you in in general, but it could also be a book that has you know more trading related book. Uh, even though I know you sit mainly on the business side of things, but but uh, that you know we all influenced by uh, by by these books. So, is there anything that you would recommend people to dive into uh, to uh, learn a bit more generally? We as a team we read uh, a lot of books actually in order to get a better understanding. Um, um, what is out there in terms of um, other managers and thoughts about the space. But in terms of um, um, the development of the program and the research process, I would say that we are most not dominated, but influenced by the thoughts um, and every, of, of an author everybody knows, Nassim Taleb's um, um, about the, the theory of the Black Swain, um, but at, uh, particularly anti-fragile as well. Um, because it, it 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 somehow refers to an aspect um, um, of the strengths of singularity as well, that you actually deliver something when the rest um, um, starts to fall apart. And uh, these anti-fragile aspect um, can be directly linked to when we actually make performance and we don't make performance as well and how these little fellows actually react to sudden events. Of course, of course, an overnight gap is, is, is difficult for us. So discontinuity risk is a difficult thing for the singularity as well. And volatility um, as an intraday volatility, but when nothing happens, so non-directional volatility, nothing happened on a day-to-day -day basis, but you saw all these movements up and down in the particular day, that's not good for us as well. But for example, if you have a large incident, a natural disaster, um, um, something which infuses a lot of chaos and tumult into the markets, um, singularity might be hit as well first. But as long as the markets continue to trade, worst case for us, uh, futures markets close, yeah, then you sit on your losses. If markets continue to trade and there's still some way of con continue trading, it's really likely that this newly infused uh, diverse, uh, um, volatility leads to uh, new directionality, which can be really fast captured by um, a trading program is, uh, which is highly reactive. And so in that term, basically, uh, it's uh, the anti-fragile contribution to an investor's allocation, um, something um, um, Nassim Taleb is um, talking about a lot, um, somehow links 
to um, um, one of our one of our strengths in our portfolio. And we probably have developed in that direction as well um, because we read his books. And particularly, Ralph is really deep in in this particular mindset as well, um, um, sp spending a lot of time looking at things from that particular angle. That's probably as well why why he has this risk manager role, so to say. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No. I certainly. And and the interesting thing is, of course, that these black swans they they tend to happen more and more often. So uh, so that uh, is probably a good starting point. I wanted to ask you, partly as an entrepreneur, partly as a um, alternative investment manager, um, if you put that thinking cap on, and that is based on everything you've learned from you know starting your business and so on and so forth. Um, if you were starting today, is there anything that you would have done differently? It's a very interesting question. It's that I would say two, two different things. How we can approach that? Of course, there are certain things we would do differently. Um, um, but second, the market environment now is different as well, which would even enforce. Um, certain aspects of doing different. Let's probably start with the second. Sure. Uh, it, it goes. It it refers a little bit to the uh, regulation part. If you if you are a young manager and you have a trading idea, and um, um, in best case you're actually trading this already with your own assets or with small assets, and you think about starting uh, a business, um, even when it's difficult um, to develop an understanding who your potential investors could be. And where they are geographically, you should spend um, significant time on that question. Go out, talk to other managers, um, try to find uh, managers who uh, do similar stuff to you. Not necessarily the same, but similar. And, and look at them, how they actually have um, positioned themselves in the market and where investors are. Um, and I'm, I'm saying that in, particularly in terms of the question of uh, regulatory aspects, because the environment, as said earlier, in Europe has become much more difficult. And uh, for example, if you are a CTA, man, shooters type of manager, um, um, to be in, in the U.S. might be a much better um, um, starting point than actually staying in, let's say, for example, Germany, uh, uh, which is really strict on the forefront of regulating pretty much everything um, on this particular alternative investment industry. And uh, it can be really difficult for you um, to actually start your business properly because you might spend a lot of time on regulatory aspects without actually knowing if you actually have um, an interesting business idea there. So um, the geographical question is certainly a thing. Of course, not everybody has the flexibility to move um, uh, immediately to the US and start a business. Um, imagine you fail, then <laughs> yeah, even more trouble maybe. But uh, it, it really, think about where, where you can develop and grow your business best in terms of um, um, framework. And um, think about where your investors are. And develop yourself a very good understanding what you are doing a good narrative and what you are differently and be careful about um, um, vocabulary you might find in the literature because it might um, mean and um, something different um, and you might you might actually use it in a different way than um, somebody else's um, using it and uh, investors might, might um, understand it uh, wrongly as well. Let's take um, volatility as an example. Um, we did that as well. I mean, the, in, in, in the beginning, um, uh, you, you build up your narrative, you try to um, um, develop um, a 
your story, everybody can, or not everybody, but your investors can understand and keep in mind as well um, how your profile looks like, how you, what, what you are planning to deliver. And uh, for example, if you say volatility is good for us, that's, um, that's a statement. But there are different types of volatilities, and you might not be aware of that in the beginning because uh, there, there might also be um, volatility in a certain um, variation, which might not be good for us. But if you actually have investors who tick the box, say, okay, volatility up, um, singularity up, or <laughs> your program up, they will be disappointed. So you have to be careful about um, the narrative and take your time to actually um, develop that properly and you can only do that by actually going out and reaching out to other managers and I personally haven't made the experience that people push you away because they perceive you as um, competitors I would say that the space in general is quite friendly and open as long as you don't talk about secret sources and stuff like that and you don't want to do that anyway so if you more talk about the general stuff it's quite supportive um, which might be the case because the, the space is suffering or has been suffering for a longer period of time. So everybody's suffering, everybody sticks together. I don't know. Sure. But um, we, we felt be welcomed quite friendly um, by peers and potential competitors, basically. They welcomed, welcomed us quite friendly and um, exchanged all kinds of different sorts. And that's something I would recommend. In terms of um, the aspect number one, do something different. Yeah, it really reflected, was already reflected reflect in what I just said um, um, earlier. I think it's it's really important that you that you're passionate about what you're doing, and uh, uh, I, I I'm so grateful that I basically had the opportunity uh, to start business with friends and continue doing business with friends. And I said earlier that life is way too short. Uh, to spend much time um, working um, with people you don't like, yeah. So if 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 you if you somehow can influence that aspect, um, uh, you will be much more successful. And that does not mean that um, things are always going um, straightforward. Uh, I think the the benefits of a friendship are that. Uh, um, you can discuss things quite openly. Um, um, things are probably much more. Um, hotly debated and uh, can be probably um, very disturbing for outside people to look at a discussion when it's uh, at its uh, hottest point. Sure. But uh, the friendship helps you as well to find solutions much faster, I would say, because then everything is said and the friendship holds you together and uh, you can actually start working on sol on, on, on solutions and um, the uh, whatever aspect uh, you discussed about has been looked at from all kinds of different angles um, further fueled by emotions. And that's probably something which is really beneficial. So um, that's probably something I would recommend um, to strive for if that's somehow possible. Sure, sure. Almost at the end, Bastian, a question that I try to remember and ask uh, all, my, uh, all my guests, and that is, can you share with me a fun fact about yourself? Something that even people who might know you may not know about you. It could be a hidden After spending talent so much, <laughs> sorry. It could sorry. be a hidden talent. I don't know. It's something. Yeah, oh my, I'm a hidden talents. I don't know. Uh, probably, <laughs> um, I, I just spent so much time probably um, uh, talking about um, um, spending so much time in the team. So I would probably argue that uh, the team um, knows about actually every aspect of, of, of my life, particularly um, as we spend much time um, um, not just discussing business, but also other aspects of life. Uh, probably 
but for the outside world, there are all kinds of different aspects. And there's probably something uh, which could add a funny aspect sure. when an investor looks at us. Um, this, is, this is a story about risk management and why, why Ralph is nowadays our risk manager. Um, so prior to taking money, uh, um, external assets, accepting external assets, uh, so prior to 2011, we were actually um, – just trading our own assets as that. And uh, we used to uh, go together on, on adventure trips once a year. And our last adventure trip uh, took us to Papua New Guinea, which is probably still one of the fewest traveled places on Earth. And it's very difficult to get around there because there are many islands and it's hardly any infrastructure and uh, they have hardly any roads and only a couple of uh, really worn down ships that work as ferries between the islands. And foreigners are actually not allowed on these ships, which are large ships, so nobody could actually report on the poor conditions. So we were traveling there in uh, early uh, 2011 and Ralph argued that uh, we would be safer on, um, I think, what was called a dinghy boat or something like that. It's mm -hmm. a small piece of wood with a big, big engine. So it looks quite impressive, but you also know that these engines might might run or not, and then you're actually in big trouble. And he was actually considering um, to cross from island to island, so open water <laughs> on these tiny boats. And the rest of us said, no, 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 um, uh, that's way too dangerous. So we insisted on taking one of these larger ships, and we actually finally bribed basically our way on one of these ships uh, called Rabaul Queen, considering us on the safe side, only to hear that one year later, the, the ship sank exactly on the same route without any warnings. Wow. And this was okay. Okay. Thank you, Ralph. And then uh, on the same ship, um, Ralph also argued that we, uh, he would not recommend climbing um, the Tavuvur, uh, which is an impressive volcano on New Britain, one of these islands. Um, actually being active. And the rest of us said, uh, but we want to go anyway. And why? Look at it. It's all calm. There's no problem. It's just a little bit steam. <laughs> and uh, Ralph was again right about that. Just in that particular um, circumstances, timing needs some improvement on his side. But all in all, he got the concept of risk because this was confirmed when Tavo Wur suddenly exploded a, a couple of months ago. I think uh, early September this year, it was a huge eruption. I, I saw a video about that and said that, that if he had been there at that particular time, which could theoretically be possible, that would be it. Um, and that's probably why Ralph is our risk manager today mm -hmm. and why we actually stopped traveling since managing other people's money as well. <laughs> Sure. This this adds a, a twist from the investor perspective. Absolutely. Now, we've been obviously talking about what investors should emphasize more on when they talk to you and ask you questions. So I always finish off by also asking you about our conversation today. Is there anything that uh, that we've missed? Have, uh, have I done you and your company justice? Or is there anything that we, uh, that we should have uh, brought up in our conversation today? I think you did perfectly well. I think you actually did a great job on on hitting all these um, um, interesting aspects, uh, not only about singularity in our development, but also um, referencing it to a certain condition the industry might be in at the moment. And I think uh, I think we we got it all. It's, it was very interesting. I highly appreciate all your questions. Sure. Great stuff. And now, before we finish completely. What's the best place for people to reach out and learn more about uh, Deepfield Capital? Yeah, we certainly have our website, uh, which is um, www.deepfieldcapital.com. And there are the contact details and you can certainly reach out to us. Um, 
um, probably also ask us about um, our um, presence at the conferences I referred to earlier. That's a good starting point where one can learn about each other and uh, yeah, send us an email, um, give us a call. That's probably um, the first thing how one can actually do that. Sure. And we will, of course, also put all the details on the show notes page for this uh, episode of um, our conversation on the toptradersonplug.com website. So that all that leaves me, Bastian, really is to uh, say, you know, thanks so much for a great conversation. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I thought it was uh, it was uh, it was fun to learn about your small fellows. I uh, we are ba- we are based in the same city, so I I imagine when I come and visit you for a coffee some point, I will meet all of these small fellows. I certainly look forward to that. That's uh, for sure. That's yeah, quite busy. <laughs> absolutely, and I hope we can connect uh, at a later date and see how uh, how you're getting on and all the great work that you're doing. So uh, so thank you so much, Passion. It's been a pleasure. Sure, excellent. Thank you very much, Niels. Have a good day. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.